This past Monday was our staff Christmas party. Now, our staff Christmas parties are normally wonderful times, especially because of the food. God has blessed Calvary Church with people here who are gifted in the culinary arts. And anytime there's a church event and there's food involved, I'm always looking forward to it. Uh, and I'm glad anytime I can do anything where somebody from the church on our staff is cooking because it's really so fantastic. So I always love our Christmas party and I always love the food that we have. The problem is, is that this year's Christmas party is on a Monday. Now, I can't remember any time in the past when our Christmas party has been on a Monday. This is the first time I remember that happening. And the reason that's a problem, at least for me, is that Monday is the day that I've committed to the Lord that I'm going to fast and pray, fast and pray for our services. And so here I am, uh, this is what I've made a commitment to the Lord. And every Monday, uh, I give up lots of opportunities to go and eat because this is more important to me, that God be present with us when we gather together. And so this past Monday, I'm looking at this Christmas party and I'm thinking, well, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> am I supposed to just skip the Christmas party and stick with the normal schedule? Am I supposed to go to the Christmas party and somehow supernaturally not eat any of this amazing food? and saw, try to find some sort of time to pray some other time? Or am I supposed to just jump in, celebrate, be part of what's going on with the rest of the staff and uh, work the prayer time that is for these services into a different part in the schedule? Now, I know you've been faced with similar kinds of questions or situations. Perhaps you have come under conviction from the Spirit regarding your finances. And you've gone through and you've set for yourself a very rigorous budget that you feel is from the Lord. And you are working uh, every month to keep exactly to that budget. You love the discipline. It's important for you to do that. But here in the middle of the month, one of your friends that you've been praying for earnestly has come to faith. And you want desperately to take her out and celebrate and have a wonderful dinner and talk about how great it is that she's now a believer. But you look in your monthly budget in the category and there's no money to do that. What do you do? Or perhaps you are on the board of a Christian school and you've always been very outspoken about the value of Christian education. But your middle child has come to you and is begging you to go to a public school. But you're on record as saying the uh, value of Christian education, what are you supposed to do in that sort of situation? Maybe you own a company and you've always had a policy of not hiring those who have criminal backgrounds but you get a phone call from a pastor at Calvary who's telling you about somebody that he knows who's just gotten out of prison and really could use a break and, and could you hire this person and give them a chance at your company? And you're thinking through, well, what should I do in this situation? Do I stick with the policy that we've always had or do I break the policy? Or perhaps you're part of a Sunday school class here at Calvary Church and your class is looking for a teacher and there's a person who has been suggested and the rest of the class says, why don't we ask him to be our teacher? But you know that uh, in this person's past, there was a time in which they walked away from the Lord. And during that time in which they had walked away from the Lord, they were unfaithful to their responsibilities in their family. And you've always believed and always thought that faithfulness to family comes first and then 
Uh, that's a qualification for leadership in God's church. But you do admit with the rest of the people in your class that God does seem to be working in and through this person when they teach. What do you do? Well, this past Monday, I'm thinking through my situation. And I turn and open my Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 21. And as I am reading and studying for this week's message, I find the answer to my question. I'd like to show it to you, not just because it helped me answer my question, but because I think all of us face these kinds of situations where we have a rule or a policy or something that we normally do and there are exceptions that come up. What are we supposed to do in those situations? And it also gives us insight into what it means to have an undivided heart for the Lord. So if you would, would you take your Bible and turn to 1 Samuel 21? It's page 207 in the church Bibles. 1 Samuel 21. Let me bring you up to speed as to where we are in the book of Samuel. At this point, David has been anointed by God as king over Israel, but Saul is still serving as king. He's still in that role as king. And while David was invited to come and be part of Saul's administration, he became the captain of Saul's guard and even became Saul's son-in-law. At some point, because God had left Saul and came upon David, Saul became very jealous of David and sought, out, sought to kill him. Saul, I'm sorry, David and Jonathan, Jonathan, Saul's son, realized that Saul wants to kill David and so they worked together to help David escape. As David is fleeing from Saul, he goes to the place we would most expect him to go. He goes to a little village called Nob, which is the religious center in Israel. Now, you may not have heard of Nob, and the reason you probably haven't heard of Nob is, is that it's not really the religious center of Israel for very long. Before this time, it had been at Shiloh. That's where the tabernacle was. That's where the priests were. And that had been the religious capital of Israel. But Shiloh currently at this time had been taken over by the Philistines. And so it moved to Nob. And at Nob, this tiny village is where the tabernacle and where the priests are. Now when David becomes king, he will move the religious center to Jerusalem. But in between Shiloh and Jerusalem, it's in the little town of Nob. And as David is running from Saul, he goes to the very first place we would expect him to go, the religious center of the kingdom. And he needs three things. He needs food, he needs a weapon, and he needs directions from the Lord. So we pick up the story in verse number one, chapter 21. David went to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, why are you alone? Why is no one with you? David answered Ahimelech the priest, the king charged me with a certain matter and said to me, no one is to know anything about your mission and your instructions. As for my men, I have told them to meet me at a certain place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. But the priest answered David, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. David replied, indeed, women have been kept from us as usual whenever I set out. The men's bodies are holy even on missions that are not holy. How much more so today? 
So the priest gave him the consecrated bread, since there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and was replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. Now one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was Doag the Edomite, Saul's head shepherd. Now the interesting thing about this story as we are reading it is that it's unlawful for David to eat this bread. That's what the priest is trying to tell him. We don't have regular bread here. We don't have bread for everyday people to eat. We've got consecrated bread, the bread that is reserved by the Mosaic law for the priests and the priests only. David is not by law allowed to eat this food. Well, here I am on Monday morning reading a passage about somebody who is thinking about eating something that he's not allowed to eat. And I'm going through in my own mind thinking about a Christmas party and eating something in which I really am not supposed to be eating. And we come along to this passage and we, and we realize that David is going through and he's eating something that he's not supposed to eat. Now, if we're going to understand what's going on in 1 Samuel, I've told you, that one of the best ways to realize what God is saying in the midst of these stories is to recognize the characters that are being presented, especially when they are being portrayed against one another. So as we've gone through the book of 1 Samuel, we have seen the contrast between Hannah and Eli, between Eli and Samuel, between Samuel and Israel, between Saul and Jonathan, between uh, Saul and David. So here too in this passage we have two characters who really are being compared and contrasted with one another. The first is, of course, David. The second is a man named Doag. Doag the Edomite. Now, Doag and David are connected together for a couple of reasons. First, notice what Doag's occupation is. What is he? He's a shepherd. What was David's job before he went to work for Saul? He's a shepherd, that's right. Who does Doag work for? Saul, he's part of Saul's sort of cabinet. He's an uh, administrator in Saul's inner leadership circle. Who, right up until this moment, did David work for? Saul. He too was part of that inner circle. This is how Doag and David know each other. They've both been part of Saul's inner council. Now, these two men are also bound together from the fact that, as I alluded to at the beginning of the service, we're only looking at the first part of this story. The rest of the story in 1 Samuel 22 tells us why we're told about Doag. Because Doag is at Nob and sees David is there, he will later rat out David to Saul. Saul will lose his temper because of the presence of the evil spirit with him. And he will order all of the priests at Nob to be executed along with their families. Now, all of the people in Israel who are with Saul at that time, all of the warriors, not a single one of them will, will carry out that order. Nobody would ever do that. And so Saul orders Doag to do it. And Doag in cold blood murders them all without a moment's hesitation, except for one. One priest does escape, Abiathar, 
and he runs to David. And there he finds protection. And so here we also see that Doag, who is the murderer of priests, is contrasted with David, who is the protector of God's people. But the interesting question as you think about Doag and David, these two characters that are so important in this story, is recognizing what they're both doing at Nob. If we understand why they're there, we're going to get what's going on in this passage. Now David is at Nob because he's seeking the Lord. He's running from Saul and he knows the best place for him to go is to God. Notice David doesn't run to Bethlehem. Bethlehem's not that far away. He could have gotten there. Bethlehem's his hometown. He would have found people there who would have sided with him. He doesn't run to Bethlehem. He doesn't run even in the opposite direction from Saul to try to get as far away as possible. When David sets out, he's got one place that he wants to go and it's to God. He knows that when he gets to God, he's going to find everything that he needs. That if he can just get to the place where God is present, everything's going to be okay. That's why David is at Nob. The question though is what's Doag doing there? This is not a big town. This is a small village. Yes, it's important because the tabernacle and the priesthood, but you wouldn't go there for any other reason except to engage in the religious life of the community. But here's the point. Doeg's an Edomite. He's not an Israelite. He's from one of the conquered people and we think that in, when, when Israel conquered Edom, that Doeg came to work for Saul and he's sort of been working his way up the chain. So the question is, what is this foreigner doing by himself at Israel's religious center? Why is he there? Well, it's not because he has a love for Yahweh or for God or for God's priests. He's about to murder them all in cold blood without a moment's hesitation. Nobody who believes in God would ever do something like that. Nobody who is seeking after the Lord would ever do what Doag is doing. So why is Doag in Nob? Well, we find the answer in this very interesting phrase in verse number seven. It says in the middle of the verse, he was detained before the Lord. Now that's a strange word to use in this context. Detained, it doesn't say that he was there worshiping the Lord. It doesn't say that he was there inquiring of the Lord. It doesn't say there he was learning of the Lord. It says that he was detained before the Lord. In my study, this is the only time I found in the Old Testament where this word is used in this kind of way in a worship context. However, it is used in post-biblical Hebrew. Interestingly enough, in contexts where people are fulfilling religious regulations, where they are stuck obeying the rules of religion. And that appears to be why Doag is there. Doag seems to have figured out that in Saul's kingdom, if you want to work your way up, you at least got to go to church occasionally. You have to at least abide by the sort of outward forms of religion. It's not going to do Doag any good if he holds on to being an Edomite and worshiping his gods. 
He's got to, he's got to come into the system. So we don't know exactly what he's there for. We don't know if it was ritual uncleanliness or what it was. But he's there fulfilling some form of religious regulation. That's what it means that he's detained before the Lord. He's stuck there. He's got to get through with whatever it is that he needs to get through in order to fulfill the regulations that's required so that at least in Saul's administration, he can have the outward appearance of being somebody who follows the rules. Now, here's the really, really fascinating concept. Doag, who is obeying the rules, is the villain. David, who at this moment is disobeying the rules, is the hero. You see the contrast that the narrator is setting up for us. Doeg is the one who's outwardly going through the stuff and doing all the right things, but whose heart is far away from the Lord. David is the one who is doing something that is explicitly said, don't do that. And his heart is following after God. This actually is Jesus' point when he comments on this exact scene in Matthew chapter 12. It says, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some of the heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Now notice, Jesus is not going to disagree with the Pharisees. He's not going to say, no, 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 this is lawful. What they're doing is perfectly legal. He doesn't say that. He doesn't argue for the legality of what they're doing. Notice what he does say. He answered, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was unlawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Doag is a Pharisee. David is a disciple. And Jesus is making the same radical point from 1 Samuel that we're making here. And the idea is, is that the Pharisees and Doag are the ones who honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from God. And David and the disciples are the one who, though to outward appearance, seem to be breaking the rules. They're the ones who are passionate for God, whose hearts are devoted to the Lord. Now, one more thing about David and Doag before we leave this contrast. Is that as we compare and contrast these two characters, we need to see how their two stories end up. Now, Doag's story is not finished in 1 Samuel 21 and 22. We don't know from those two chapters what happens to him because he's never mentioned in 1 Samuel again. 
But we are told in another passage of Scripture what the end result of these two characters are. And that passage of Scripture is Psalm 52. So if you turn over in your Bible to Psalm 52, I want to look together at the ending for these two. Psalm 52, it's page 405. Now look at the inscription that comes right under the heading Psalm 52. Some of the Psalms in our Bible give us some indication as to when they were written, under what circumstances they were written. Look what it says. When Doeg the Edomite had gone to Saul and told him, David is gone to the house of Ahimelech. To the best of our understanding, Psalm 52 was penned by David about this event. Like if you want to know what's David thinking, what's he going through, what's going on in his heart and his soul at this time, this is what he writes in his journal regarding the event that we just read about. Look over in verse number five. Surely God will bring you down to everlasting ruin. He will snatch you up and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous will see and fear. They will laugh at him saying, here now is the man who did not make God his stronghold, but trusted in his great wealth and grew strong by destroying others. That's Doag. That's who he's talking about. And what David is saying is Doag's future is destruction. Doag and Saul are not victorious. They don't win. God tears down those who, like Doag, destroy innocent lives. That's Doag's future. But verse number eight, look what David says about himself. But I am like an olive tree flourishing in the house of God. I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. I will praise you forever for what you have done. In your name I will hope for your name is good. I will praise you in the presence of your saints. The result of David is that he has joy. Joy. He's overjoyed. Why? Because when he runs to Nob, what he finds there waiting for him is not a set of rules, but a living God. He finds not a set of requirements that he's going to have to keep. Doeg is the one who's there who's just biding his time until he can get back to what he really wants to do. When David arrives in Nob, what he finds waiting for him is the living God of the universe. And David is overjoyed. This past Monday, I'm reading through this passage and I think, well, duh, God's telling me, go eat the Christmas lunch, celebrate, enjoy. And you know what I did? And I got to tell you, that food tasted really, really good. But it's not just because I was hungry. And it's not just because it was good food. It was because I was rejoicing 
that I don't serve a set of rules, but a living God who loves us and cares about us and wants us to be able to experience his presence. And in the midst of community, we experience it. And I felt joy that God himself was saying to me, I see you, I see the rules, I see, and that's good, but I want you today to enjoy the food. Go eat and celebrate and enjoy. I bet you that these five loaves that David ate tasted incredibly good to him. Not just because he was hungry, but because they came from the hands of the living God who said, I know what the law says, but I'm here and I'm greater than the law. And I have given this to you. And so if this week your friend comes to Christ and there's no money in the budget to take them out to eat, Throw the budget away for one night and take them out. Celebrate. This is what the Lord has done. And rejoice that we don't serve a God who is a financial taskmaster. But we serve a living God who wants us to experience the joys of life. If you decide and feel prompted by the Spirit to send your middle child to that public school, even though you're on record as saying Christian education is the best way to go, even though you are so invested and you feel like you're going to be letting everybody around you down, if you send them to that public school, you will experience joy. Joy that we serve a living God and that we're not bound by other people's expectations even our own, that it's Jesus that we serve. If you end up hiring that person who has that criminal background, even though you've had a policy, a long-standing policy, not to ever do that. If God leads you in that direction, you're going to experience joy. Amen. The joy that it's not a set of rules or a rela- uh, 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 regulations that we're following, but a person. A person who is bigger and more mysterious and more powerful than our policies and our procedures. Policies and procedures are great. But they can become an end in themselves. And we thank God for these occasional reminders that it's not those that we serve, it's him. And if God leads your Sunday school class to call this person to be your teacher, who in the past had the kind of record or things that they had done in which you normally would have thought of them as not being qualified to do this, if God makes that choice for your class, rejoice. Rejoice that the God that we serve is a forgiving and loving God. And it's not a list of rules or regulations that we're following, but the God of the universe. Now, this story is not a license to go out and do whatever you feel like doing. It's not a license to just simply take God's moral law and throw it away and do whatever you feel like doing. That's not the point of this story. That's not the point of what I'm trying to say this morning. The Bible over and over again says, don't use your freedom as a uh, opportunity to indulge your own sinful nature. But the Bible also says that we have been set free, that we've been set free from rules and from the law. We have been set free from a dead kind of relationship and instead given a living relationship with the God of the universe. After all, isn't this what the gospel is about? We tell people it's not about the rules, it's about the relationship. That's what David is saying. That's what Jesus is saying. 
is that at some point for every one of us, there's going to come some rule or some policy or something, some expectation in which God is saying, I'm calling you out of that to remind you it's not about the rules. It's about the relationship. And even when you think about what just happened in Connecticut, you're going to hear lots of people talking about gun laws, about violence in society, about better security, better policies, better procedures. There's a place for all those discussions. But what the gospel of Jesus tells us is that rules are never the solution. You can have somebody who follows all of the outward regulations and rules, but whose heart is far from God. And you can have another person who is disobeying the policies and procedures, but whose heart beats with Christ's. And the hope that we have, the hope for the whole world, not a set of rules, not a set of regulations, but a genuine living relationship with God himself. And that's why at Advent we light the candle of joy. We're rejoicing that God at Christmas did not give us a rule book. That God at Christmas did not give us a set of regulations. But God at Christmas became one of us. That we might live and serve him. And so my prayer for each of us is that we might know the joy of a living relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. Lord, all of us are legalists at heart. It's easier to simply try to follow the rules. But God, I thank you that it's not the law that we are under, but it's grace. I thank you, Lord, that the old covenant, the covenant that brought death, is not our covenant. That we are servants of a new covenant, a covenant of the Spirit. And God, I know there are people here this morning who right now are facing these kinds of choices. They're thinking, do I, do I stay with people's expectations or with policies or procedures or rules and regulations, even things that they may have set up for themselves? Lord, I pray that it would be your spirit that guides them. Lord, I pray that each person here would experience the joy of walking with your spirit in such a way that whether it's the rules or the policies or expectations or whatever are subverted to what your will is for us. God, I pray for those who may be here who do not yet know Christ. Lord, the world talks about religion. God, we want them to know about a relationship with you. And so, Father, I pray that you would make yourself known to them in a real and powerful way. And God, thank you. Thank you for joy. In Christ's name, I ask these things. Amen.